Done. A little teaser, a little musical interlude. five books of Neil Gaiman's Sandman feel as if they're in service of world building. Sandman is captured, he loses his stuff, he goes on quests to get it back, and we as readers learn about the rules of the world. We learn a little bit about Morpheus, that he can be petulant and moody. And he's such a shitty boyfriend. The final five original books in the Sandman epic, however, that is books six through ten, tell a much different story. It's about responsibility, not just to your job, but also to your family. It's very much about death as well, both preparing for it as well as how to accept it when it comes. And it's about the role that dreams, or more specifically stories, play in the way we process the events in our lives, both the good and the bad. As Joan Didion wrote in the White Album, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. We look for the sermon in the suicide, for the social or moral lesson in the murder of five. We interpret what we see, select the most workable of the multiple choices. We live entirely by the imposition of a narrative line upon disparate images, by the ideas with which we have learned to freeze the shifting phantasmagoria, which is our actual experience. End quote. Putting that liberal arts degree to work, Ryan. But we're talking about Neil Gaiman here. Well, excuse me. I like that quote. Anyway, that's a big aspect of the second half of The Sandman, and I think it's in these final books that the saga gets its lofty reputation, where it transcends being an interesting adventure story to being an examination about what it means to be human, explored through the point of view of a character who isn't human for the first few millennia of his life, but becomes much more human at the end of his journey. So, I'm Ryan Joe. I'm Roman Segel. And we're two guys who read The Sandman all the way through. Except for book 11. Whoops. All right, so Roman, what were your expectations going to the second half? And were those expectations met? I, the, the expectations of the Sandman in general were astronomically high. And one through five was a letdown. So I felt like I was strapping in for a slog. I was like, okay, well, I got to finish this. Required reading. And for the most part, I really enjoyed the second half. I I think I had I lowered my expectations for this for the second run. What what did what did the second half of the Sandman have for you that the first half didn't? You kind of said it in the intro. All the world building, all the essential mechanics were built up. I wanted to write down for this one what were books six through ten about. And these are terrible things, but book six is about the sun, book seven's about the sister. Book eight's about the inn and the stories. Book nine's about witches and book ten's a funeral. And I really enjoyed the son, sister, and inn chapters, so to speak. Like I liked understanding the the backstory and the relationship with the son. And I like how six and seven were just very much about family. And relationships with family are complex. The one thing that that where that really hit home was his sister Delirium's like, hey, I need your help with something. And he doesn't want to help her. He doesn't. He's going through his own shit. He's like, fine, I will. And it's like a fun, weird road trip movie, followed by the realization that he was actually a bit of a shitty brother. And he doubles down and goes and helps her even more. And and anyway, I guess 
I it really kind of spoke to me about the relationship between siblings. Yeah, so I they they were much more personal book six and seven, and because the world was established, you could go there. I think I kind of mentioned this in the last episode. The second half, the action is really dictated by Morpheus's relationships with his family members, and I mean even up to the very end. The reason all of the bad stuff happens in book nine in the kindly ones is because he he kills his son. He fulfills his son's wish to kill him. And that basically sets off all of the action at the end. And of course, the reason Salmon is being hunted as well is because a, a mother, Lita Hall, thinks that Morpheus stole her son. So it's very much tied to these very primal relationships of father and son, mother and son, versus in the in the earlier books, it's kind of cool in sort of a quest way, like my stuff is missing and I need to find it. But it doesn't have that really powerful emotional resonance. And... Yeah, you're right. Besides The Kindly Ones, which is the penultimate book. I don't know if actually if it's the penultimate book anymore since there's book 11, but whatever. My favorite is the one you talked about, Volume 7, Brief Lives. And that's essentially that weird road trip movie where Morpheus goes off with his sister Delirium to find their missing brother, Destruction. So you kind of have this actually three-way relationship between Dream, Delirium, and Destruction. And... What one thing I really liked is seeing that relationship between Dream and and uh, Delirium because it's very much an exasperated older brother. I don't want to have to do this. Okay, I'll put up with your shit because we're related. Sort of, sort of <laughs> relationship. And I thought that felt very, very, very true. You know how siblings or people who are you know super close to you like that have this unique ability to just get under your skin and pressure buttons the way nobody else does. And it's clear that Delirium can do that with dream even though she's not trying to it's just the way she is yeah it's how she's wired yeah and that actually makes that book come alive and the other quests he's just sort of like i have to go to hell and i have to confront these enemies and he confronts the enemies and it's interesting but it kind of lacks that sort of back and forth well well it's like that what dream I, has what with I, delirium dream is yeah. like the ultimate straight man and in, in every in every volume throughout, like he's the straight man, and that's pretty much how it rolls through everything. But to your point, in volume seven, through all these chapters, the straight man shtick is is just funnier. It's just better because of Delirium. Like I I don't like Delirium as a character, but I like who Sandman has to be around his kid sister. Like literally when they're driving and he has to call his raven buddy to come teach his sister how to drive. There's just, there's so many moments and beats. To your point about Morpheus being the straight man, I mean, it's fair to say he, the guy kind of has a stick up his ass, right? And you see this throughout, really. I mean, he's got this strong sense of duty and anybody who shirks their responsibilities, like his brother Destruction, he kind of looks down on them. He has a strong sense of propriety that makes him humorless. But in Brief Lives, he's... He's definitely kind of like a fish out of water. And you kind of see the his sense of propriety working against him, both in how he deals with delirium, who's the exact opposite of exhibiting any sense of like good manners. And even when Morpheus tries to maneuver through the waking world, like when he tries to rent a car, there's actually a <laughs> lot of humor there because the way he does it is just so, so weird. He goes up to the receptionist in the car rental agency and says, you know, who rules here? To whom do you report? Who employs you? Who controls transportation? So you see his propriety, his adherence to the rules working against him because the rules that Morpheus follows are so weird and odd in the waking world. You don't get a lot of fish out of water stories with Morpheus. So 
this book really kind of pops because of that. It feels very true to, to who Morpheus is as well. It's it's kind of using the demeanor that Neil Gaiman had set up for, you know, the past six volumes and kind of finally using it for comedy. One other thing to note about Brief Lives and the art, the art is all over the place across this entire series. Fortunately, towards the, the last five volumes, it feels like they kind of paired with artists for certain storylines. Yeah. But I don't want to say the art in Brief Lives is the best. I don't think it is. I actually think the art in uh, The Kindly Ones is the best for different reasons because it's more stylized. But the art in Volume 7 was the most consistent. And I appreciated that because it kind of had that... You needed that consistency to be walking through the waking world. Mm, that's actually... A, that's a really good point. It, it, better, it can be sometimes jarring, um, especially in the earlier books where the artist would change through, throughout. And I know that there's an extent to which, you know, that, that makes sense because dreams are always going to be different. I do think Neil Gaiman does conscientiously try to pair artists with certain storylines. And I'm, the, the, I'm thinking about the Shakespeare storylines well, illustrated by Charles Vess. So two stories I really want to talk about, both book six and book 10, that I just loved, like loved. At the very end of book six, Fables and Reflections, is the story called Ramadan, which is, it tells the tale of this king of Baghdad and how he knows it will never be as amazing as it is. And so he wants it to live on in dreams forever. And that's his wish. And I love this story. And the other one shot that I loved is in book 10 by one of my all-time favorites. Actually, he's a he's a kid's book artist now, but he got his start in comic books. John J. Muth, the one with the traveling Asian man in the desert who encounters both Morpheus and his son Daniel when he becomes king of dreams. Okay. But no, I want to talk about that because I actually, those were the two that I, I didn't like as much. Here's, here's what I liked about them. Here's what I liked about them. They were, some of my favorite things in The Sandman were not about Morpheus's narrative. It was how, how our world interacts with Morpheus or how our world interacts with dreams. And the one about the Middle East and the one about Asia, they just dove in and they were so stylistically different from everything else in this volume while still maintaining like Gaiman's way with words. So what? What? Let's talk about the one in the Middle East, because you know, I, you know, that was uh, written during the first Iraq War, I think. I assume because it, the the last, you know, after he kind of oh wow, yeah, sells they Morpheus out of the, the city, yeah, right, right. So it's sort of like Baghdad sort of fallen from grace after this king basically yeah. gives the city over to Morpheus so that its splendor can always be remembered, but only in dreams. What, Which so is what, a great what, Weezer song, by the way. <laughs> what did you like about it? At first, I didn't like it. Anytime it's hard to read the script in which it's written, I get really annoyed. But the more they just kind of kept going into like how opulent he was, how much he had. And then when they showed him like descending and descending and descending into his like tombs, I just mm. it, the madcap nature of it was so funny. And I was wondering, what is it building to? And before he even asked for the boon, I knew what he was going to ask for. Because Baghdad is just kind of like Constantinople, right? It's it's one of the great cities that does not exist anymore, but it the tales of it do exist in memory. But it's it was so different, and it told a tale to a Western audience that I, Barun on our last episode was talking about. Like he doesn't he it's not getting into Eastern um, or South Southeast Asian cultures and religions, but it is 
kind of acknowledging that a world exists outside of the, like the Judeo-Christian view of the world. We spent so much time in ancient Greece and we spend so much time in these with William Shakespeare, et cetera. Was that the same appeal that the exiles, the, the book, the, the chapter in, um, Book ten also had it because it's definitely it's it's an Eastern story and visually it's very it's very I'm, good brushwork. I John J. Muth, I I'm so biased towards. Like we we could do an episode on all of the kids' books that John J. Muth does. I actually I think you know no one's listening to this, but like you know I wrote a kids' book and I was inspired by John J. Muth, not in how I told my story, but just how good his thing was and what I wanted to do for my daughter with my book. And I actually sent a copy to John J. Muth, and he wrote me back. And oh, wow. yeah, he has a new book that just came out actually too. And uh, you know, when I started looking him up, he has linkages in Ohio and New York, kind of like I do. He's a, he's a former comic book artist, but I never read any of his comic book stuff. I think he did some Batman tale, but so to open the page and see his name and then know what I was getting into, it was just a treat to me. So I was biased as soon as I saw his name on the page. And by that point I was in book 10 and I was kind of so-so with book 10. The, the saving grace of book 10 were the last two stories, the John J. Muth one and the closing of the William Shakespeare story. I want to talk a little bit about the the William Shakespeare stuff as well, because I was actually really pleasantly surprised about how they, he, uh, Neil Gaiman handled that. Because the easy way out would be like, you know, Morpheus, you know, gives Shakespeare all the guy's ideas. And to an extent, that's kind of what happened, right? I mean, he kind of like unlocks Shakespeare's imagination. And well, but but Shakespeare. I like I like how, how Morpheus said it to him at the end. He's like, no, I just kind of opened the door for you. You had it uh, in yeah, you. Yeah, but also I like the fact that Gaiman actually goes into the relationship between Shakespeare and Morpheus, like the, the boon that mm -hmm. uh, Shakespeare has to pay to Morpheus. He has to write two plays, one being Midsummer Night's Dream. And then when you see that section... It depicts the the fairy world that Morpheus yeah. has a relationship with, and those characters all come back and play a, a really really huge role in what ultimately happens to Morpheus, and and then you have the Tempest at the end, and that kind of sheds a lot of light into Morpheus's decision making at the end, which I do actually I do want to get into like what happens in the kindly ones because we definitely need to talk about that but yeah. but um, one thing worth one thing worth noting about the last Shakespeare episode is it was the same thing that the the Sultan of Baghdad said and the wish that Shakespeare had is like I want to live beyond my lifetime I want my work to live beyond in the dreams of men or whatever and that was such a I mean maybe it is an egotistical male thing but it was like I know I will be dust, you know, and mm. I want my work to live on. And so for the Prince of Baghdad, he was just like, I want Baghdad to live on in, in the dreams of men. Cool. But for Shakespeare, he was like, I want to create something that people will remember beyond me. And that's that appeal of how they kind of bargained with this member of the Endless for something greater than them. It's actually kind of like a, a bargain for, for immortality, but not immortality in, in, the, in the conventional sense. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's actually interesting what Morpheus says to Shakespeare. He says, I am the prince of stories, Will, but I, I have no story of my own, nor shall I ever. So there's almost this thought that Morpheus, I mean, obviously Neil Gaiman is telling this character's story, but a lot of people, they, they just have no recollection of, of meeting Morpheus. You might run into him in your dreams, but you'll, you'll forget him when you when you wake. So should we talk about the kindly ones? 
we definitely need to because that's the that's a big one and of course it's the kindly ones where morpheus dies and i was actually curious what you think about his the manner of his death was it a suicide in the second read through the premeditation feels a lot more salient to me i don't know if it was suicide i think it was giving up it was a winding tale that again i only read it for the first time so i I didn't have the reverence for the material that so many others do when i read it so nine felt like a slog and i knew there was a volume 10 and i didn't realize volume 10 would all be kind of awake literally awake so as i'm reading i'm like come on let's let's get to it what's going on i get it she's gonna join the witches they're gonna have this epic battle and what i loved about morpheus's take on the battle I mean, even his people are like, dude, they're killing us. What the fuck? And he says, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get to it. And it's this resignation of, I can't solve this. This is going to destroy everything. The only way to solve this is to get out of the way and just die. And Yeah. 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 But I, I also feel like, I mean, Morpheus was ready, right? In book seven, Brief Lives, that's where they go on that to look for destruction and destruction was one of the endless who just abdicated he just left and death kind of says you know you could just walk away and, and you know morpheus has this really strong sense of duties i can't do that i have responsibilities so when morpheus gives up his throne he has to do so within the confines of the laws that he keeps yeah, he keeps saying there are rules there, there are, are rules. rules yeah and he has to and, and he has to give up his throne within the confines of those rules which essentially means he has to die and you know, when he does die, it's basically to save the dreaming, to save the kingdom. But it's almost like he sort of set up this scenario. It's not it's not entirely clear whether this scenario was in some way orchestrated by Morpheus so that he could finally, you know, have this excuse to to move on, I guess, to embrace death and move on to whatever's next. Or if if it was just circumstances that that kind of you know, forced him into this position. It's it's not clear. And you can kind of make an argument both ways. Lita Hall, I just, I get her motivations. Here's, I okay, so her I get. The witches I don't. Like, mm. do the, were they just like an instrument of destruction waiting for an excuse to kind of, to, to take a piece out of Morpheus? I don't know. Their motivations seem super hollow other than, they just kind of sucked. <laughs> like again, not Lita Hall. I get her motivation, but you see this like parallel side story of the Corinthian and the Raven finding the sun, and the Loki stuff was pretty good. But it was just a big mix-up. She wanted to kill him, yeah. and and that's where it, just the motivations and the impending doom towards Morpheus just felt stupid. So I actually kind of like that. And so I'd never viewed the Furies, the Kindly Ones, as... I mean, they are the villains, but they are really more the instrument that Lita Hall uses in order to get revenge on Morpheus. Lita Hall is the one who's really kind of motivated to take out uh, Morpheus. And to me, like, the Furies, they have a set of rules that aren't fully explained. Their reasons for doing things aren't always clear and so i i kind of just viewed them as sort of like a weapon that lita hall just deploys and in deploying this weapon you know there are certain rules just like there are rules to if you shoot a gun there's a way that the mechanism works i view the furies less as characters and more as just kind of an instrument lita hall was the one who really kind of went on this on this journey so that 
honestly didn't bother me. And what I did like about all of this, honestly, is that it was a mix-up. You know, Morpheus was condemned for something that he didn't really even do, right? You know, Lita Hall wants him dead because she thinks Morpheus kidnapped the son. He did not. He was kidnapped by Loki, and Loki's motivation to me was clear. In fact, it was very sneaky because in the in, in one of the earlier books, Morpheus frees Loki and says, "I'll free you, you know, and you know you'll pay me back in the future." It, it kind of feels like this Casablanca. This feels like the beginning of a long friendship, but instead, it becomes the reason that Loki wants revenge. He does not want to owe anybody anything, and I I love that, you know. And he has his team up with with Puck, with Robin Goodfellow, who was introduced in. You know the the Midsummer Night's Dream yeah, sequence. Yeah. So I, I actually liked how all of these different elements came together, and to me, it felt like they came together very, very naturally. And you know, last episode I was kind of talking about how all of this felt very premeditated. How how I thought it was really sneaky. How Neil Gaiman was setting up all of these different threads, and who eventually paid off at the end. And for me, and kindly ones. This is where he pays it off. A lot of these characters who seem disparate and separate with different motivations, it all sort of comes together here. So that's what I liked about it. <laughs> it's like a really good episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> it is. Yes, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's pretty much Neil Gaiman doing a really good episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> that's what this episode should be called. <laughs> but, you know, and then also there was the, the destruction, you know, that happens in, in the dream. You know, you see, you see characters you've kind of been familiar with you see them yeah, yeah. you see them die and you know i i know there's this, this element of dream could just remake them well he does uh, and, and he every, does and, yeah. and the, the the forest meadow or whatever the fuck he is i love how in book 10 he's like to the new dream you can't do that leave me alone and even when when morpheus dies even though there's a new person who assumes the mantle of dream you can tell it's a different person and i actually think that's like a really great you know, it kind of like shows Neil's Neil Gaiman's skill as a writer. Even though they he kind of talks the same as Morpheus, the new dream is clearly a different person who's much less experienced, much younger. And it goes more than, you know, beyond just how he looks visually. It's the way he kind of interacts with everybody. That's a tricky character to write, right? A character who's like super old, who has all of the knowledge in the world, but is also like brand new at this and has no idea what he's doing. I mean, what a weird dichotomy to have in the same character. And I, I think uh, Gaiman pulls that off really, really well. All right. So was there, was there anything else that made book nine, the kindly ones sort of a, like a slog for you? It, it just, the pieces coming together were not as obvious to me because I, I, let me ask, let me flip the question back on you. The first time you read the kindly ones, you had read everything before. Did you see all the did you see all the plot elements kind of tying together and coming back? Not as clearly. This is my second read of it yeah. and I was really struck by it, you know, well, the second time. I, I think I, in other in other penultimate chapters of other books that I'm reading as they're coming out, be it, you know, things like Saga or pretty much all the Brian K. Vaughn, all the Bendis stuff that, you know, runs multiple volumes where I'm reading it and like I'm waiting on Amazon for it. Like I pre-ordered the book. I can't wait for it to come out. I think in those, I'm more invested because it sits with me longer. You know, mm. you read a volume, you wait four months. You read another volume, you know, and even before the new volume comes out, maybe you go back and reread them. And with this, because we, I was binging it for the first time, I didn't see all the threads as much as you did. 
there were things I enjoyed about it. One thing I will say I really liked about this is Mark Hempel's art. He has a very Phil Hester kind of, it seems goofy, but it's so hyper stylized. It lets the horrible moment seem even more horrible. It lets the great moments seem even greater. So, well, it's really, it's really abstracted and it's, you know, less detailed than some of the other illustrators who've done Sandman, but his storytelling is super clear. Like it's always, there are some artists where I'm like, not sure what's going on in the panels. And, you know, that, that I, I actually think that's really important for a book as long as the kindly ones, which is significantly longer than all of the other books in the series. And it also keeps things really kind of flowing because again, a lot happens in the kindly ones. There's a lot of different plot elements that are coming together. And visually, just the fact that his style is very easy to process visually, it just kind of keeps the whole thing really flowing. You know, one thing we didn't talk about as we kind of race towards the end is World's End. Oh, which... I, want, I do want to talk about that. I actually really love World's End. So much End. fun. It's yeah. so much fun. Because it's, it's, it's the last volume of are some people who interacted with Morpheus. That's and I just I love those stories more than anything else. But did you ever in high school or you know the English classes in college you were forced to take? Did you ever read like the Canterbury Tales or the Decameron? Yes, yes exactly. Right, it's it's the same thing, right? A bunch of travelers are taking shelter in an abandoned church or in a bar, and they have nothing to do to pass the time, so they just tell weird stories, and those stories kind of reveal a little bit more about the the storyteller. And what I also like about World's End is how it really kind of gets that conversation about death started, right? Because the last storyline takes place in this necropolis, this giant yeah. city yep. of Dead undertakers. <laughs> and, you know, and, and initially it's just kind of like a weird alien culture that we're exploring. But then you kind of realize, oh, actually, you know, they're talking, they're really talking about the relationship with death. And... Right after that, you kind of have this giant funeral that foreshadows what's ultimately going to happen to to Morpheus. And that is, of course, the reason they're all taking shelter. I think the storm, isn't it? Isn't it essentially like Morpheus's death that might be oh, reverberating? Wow. I this that was yeah, the, the timeline doesn't quite add up, but I kind of assumed that's what it was. You know, like I know this kind of happens before Morpheus is actually destroyed, but I also know that time is pretty supple in in Sandman. You know, characters from the past meet up with characters. So it would make sense that the reverberations of Morpheus' death would sort of like go across not just dimensions, but timelines. So I want to talk about Prez because I, I love Mike Allred. I've said that. I think this is some of Mike Allred's like weakest art. It's good. Yeah. It's just not the Mike Allred I love, but I actually kind of love the story. Of all of the stories in uh world's end it's the quirkiest it takes place in a very strange hyper real version of you know what it is okay so like the other stories and what, by the way was it by the way was it prez an actual comic book so Pre it's actually in the 70s a short-lived comics reading wikipedia a short-lived comic series by writer joe simon and artist jerry grandinetti in 1973 and 1974 Oh, and actually, yeah, if you look at the cover of the Prez comics, it actually, like when he's riding in the car uh, yeah. with his buddies after he's winning the election, Mike Allred actually, yeah, il re-illustrates that. So you know what? You're right. He was a real character. That is interesting. I actually, that's actually one thing I really like. Neil Gaiman throughout Sandman sort of pokes fun at different DC characters. And there's this, actually this line that I found really funny where Batman and Superman and... 
Martian, Martian Manhunter yeah. are sort of talking and he's like, do you ever dream you're a character in a cartoon and some other actor playing your life? And Batman's like all the time and Martian Manhunter, who's never had like <laughs> really appeared in a, in, a, in, a, in a movie or TV series at that point says, no, never. So I kind of like the sort of tongue in cheek stuff. I was going to just mention about Prez, like, I mean, aside from the fact that he's a real DC character, every every other story, you know, it's sort of like an elven land, a, a, a necropolis. It's sort of like they all kind of take place in different fantasy lands. But Prez's story takes place in a very weird, hyper-real version of America. And that's actually the only time you really see that in Sandman. You know, the waking world is generally... It's a, a playground. Familiar. Yeah. Well, it, I was going to say it's very, it's basically our world, yeah. but here you kind of see the way you kind of see Prez's world as being this really kind of strange version of America where an 18 year old boy runs for president and, you know, is, is, is amazing at it. So that's actually, so, so that's, it's actually, I kind of mentioned, said before, I, I thought it was one of the, you know, wasn't the one that one of the stories that resonated with me as much, but I do kind of appreciate how different it is in tone that's one thing i will say that i loved about this book overall is it never found a consistent tone the only consistency were some of the rules and the frameworks put in place Mm. but i liked how every book had a distinctly different feel i didn't have to like all of them but it felt like different directors with with the artists right but even kind of the type of story game and one to tell it was all building to something, but they're all very different angles of it. And there, there's something that inconsistency, as long as the inconsistency was between stories, I was okay with it. That makes sense because it's a story about dreams and each dream is going to feel very, very different. I think about like the movie Inception and one of the things that drives me nuts about that movie is it's a movie that takes place in dreams and yet the world the dream worlds of Inception are all kind of like really mundane. I mean, it's like, it's like everyone's going to the office. Like those are some boring freaking dreams in Inception, except for, I mean, the city's kind of fold in on themselves, but that's it, you know, versus like Neil Gaiman's dream world. They kind of understand that dream logic is weird and inconsistent and things change all the time. And it feels like you're flitting between dreams. And that's a credit to Neil Gaiman's, storytelling you know not only is he able to tell an interesting adventure story story about you know a man trying to or a deity trying to become a man or learning what it means to become a man story about familial responsibility he also kind of does it within this world that feels very true to you know to it being a dream world um with Logic that kind of changes throughout, but at the same time, there's still this underlying foundation where it never feels like Neil Gaiman is just making it up as he goes along. And that's like a tough, tough thing to balance, right? Where you have these dream logic, but it has to be anchored by some sort of narrative foundation. How do you feel about the ending of the last page being about Shakespeare? It, it wasn't so much like that it ends on Shakespeare. It's that it reveals Morpheus's motivation for for doing what he does. You know, Shakespeare asks him, why did you want this story? Why did you? Why is this the last one I'm doing for you? And he says, I wanted a tale of graceful ends. I wanted a play about a king who drowns his books and breaks his staff and leaves his kingdom, about a magi- magician who becomes a man, about a man who turns his back on magic. I mean, that is essentially 
what Morpheus does at the end. And you, and what that shows is that Morpheus had been thinking about doing this for, for a very long time. Well, for a very long time by human standards, maybe not for, for Morpheus' standards. And that's why I started thinking about the extent to which what happens in The Kindly Ones was premeditated. The Morpheus had been planning all along to find a way to abdicate without having to abdicate. I will say, though, that the one thing about Morpheus that I didn't quite understand, you know, he, he, he says, I am not a man and I do not change. Throughout the Sandman, people are saying, oh, Morpheus, you've changed. He's changed. Morpheus, you've yeah. changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I never actually see that. Like, I know we get flashbacks of Morpheus as a younger guy. And, you know, it's mostly characters saying, wow, Morpheus, in the past, you wouldn't have saved her. And you did. You must like people more. But, you know, you never really get a sense just think- from seeing him act how he's changed I disagree. And that's I disagree. okay 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 yeah tell me i'm curious because i was just, looking for this his his tone never changes he's always yeah, a true. straight guy yeah for his sure. choices and his actions absolutely change the the, the clearest example yeah. is the guilt that he felt with delirium he's apparently like really upset about a breakup mm. with a girl and so he's like fine i'll go on a road trip it'll be distracting and he's a total dick to his sister on this road trip and at the end of it, he's like, no, let's go do this right. Again, he still plays the straight man every time. In every scene, it's the same, you know, delivery of lines. It's yeah. the choices that he makes. You know, let's use another example, his son. His son. You're right. It, you know what? His son, You know, actually, after he, he agrees to fulfill his boon to his son, there's that scene where he's actually kind of... So I do take this back. You do see him change. I was wrong. But you see him I'm kind sorry, of... Can you say that again? Sorry. Say what? <laughs> He, no, you do see him. You do see him mourning after he takes his son's life. So you can kind of see that it has this this effect on him. I wonder if that's the reason. Maybe he wanted to leave, or he had it to end. Is he was no longer consistent? Like almost like he was compromised. <laughs> like I don't know if it was like about not being consistent because that almost makes it a very clinical reason to stop doing something right it's like i'm no longer as effective at my job i think i will stop doing it you know i i i feel like there was an emotional toll that he didn't really know how to he was just tired of 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 everything that he'd gone through i don't think it's a coincidence that the first thing that you know the way sandman begins is morpheus is in prison in a glass jar for like 80 years and you know he specifically says time passes for me just as it does for everybody else i was really in there for 80 years it felt like 80 years i mean that's gotta like screw you up and then afterwards it's it's that road trip with delirium and then it's the 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 death of his son so he has these kind of traumas that happen to him in kind of quick succession like really over the course of like five six years which is like in a blink of an eye for one of the endless so i mean to me that's all kind of leading to this emotional build-up where he does decide i just through i want to quit but he still has that fealty to his job, to his responsibilities, such that he can't just knock off like destruction does. He actually like starts setting up for the next person to to take over. And I wonder if Daniel all along, the child that was born in a dream, was set up by Morpheus as either his successor or if when Morpheus saw this kid, he was like, oh, that's my out. Yeah, I, I, think come for more, him. I think it was more of the latter. I think it was more of the latter because you, yeah. you look at the way he communicates to Lita the few times he interacts with her at the very end of that escapade in the first few volumes and when he comes to see her later, 
in his in this kid's ability to kind of crawl into the dreaming. I think I think it wasn't intentional, but once he saw what this kid could do, you know, and because he wanted an out, and he found his out, and it worked so well because never mind this kid, but the mother was the beginning of his undoing. You know, I wonder in the beginning if to the extent to which like. Neil Gaiman was going to give Morpheus a more conventional enemy because initially Desire was like, you know, tries to set set it up so that he, so that Morpheus would kill his daughter and then you know he, Desire could stick the Furies on him, and then later on the Devil says, "I will kill him. I will destroy him one of these days." I kind of wonder if Neil Gaiman was kind of ever thinking about, you know, using the, either of those two characters as a more conventional nemesis before deciding to take a, a much more unexpected route. I have no idea. I'm just speculating here. No one can be told what the answer really is. That's the thing about Sandman. I, I, you know, it's funny. I have on reflection. I'm glad I read it. I don't, I'm sure I will read it again. So my question back to you, Ryan is how was it the second time versus the first time? I liked it. I liked it a lot more the second time. I was much younger the first time. Also, I was probably in my early twenties so, you know, a lot of what I think Gaiman was going for, I didn't quite understand. You know, it's just like the relationships between the different characters, you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that I hadn't gone through. And, you know, just being older gives you a lot more perspective. As my relationships with, you know, family and friends have deepened beyond being this 20-year-old kid, it's res- it resonated with me a lot, a lot more. And as I kind of mentioned in the introduction, I really feel like it's those final five books where the Sandman really gets the reputation it deserves. The first five are kind of cool adventures. The last five is where it it really starts becoming a much deeper series. Yeah, and I'm genuinely curious. I have volume 11. I picked it up from the library on Friday. I'm I'm ready to read it. And, you know, Death is a fantastic character, and I, I can understand why readers latched onto her so she got her own series and by Gaiman and so I'm I'm eager to dig in a little bit more to the universe to see where it goes so yeah I'm, I'm glad I read it and I'm I'm glad I have a required reading list because of this podcast <laughs> so Ryan what are we reading next week well, we're going to add two more to your required reading list, Roman, because next week is a double feature. We're going to be taking a look at Eleanor Davis's 2014 collection of short stories and fables, How to Be Happy, as well as her 2019 graphic novel, The Hard Tomorrow. Eleanor Davis is, I think, one of the most innovative and interesting sequential storytellers working today. And even though there's a five-year period between the two books we're reviewing, I think you'll find they work very well as companion pieces. Both are about how to find love, how to find happiness in a world that is increasingly hostile. So there we go. I'm looking forward to it. Hope you are too. We'll see you next week.